I'm John Acklin, an alcoholic. I am very enthusiastic about this program, and I'm very grateful for this way of life. It's really terrific. (laughs) For a while, I thought I'd never get on. You know, I I postpone it as long as possible. I I, uh, certainly like to thank... Carol and the committee for the invitation. And I'd like to thank you very much for this hospitality. It has been a fabulous weekend. And uh, it seems like I, I really feel like being home here. I have been to so many places around Oregon. And, and I, I have a lot of friends in this room. And you mean a lot to me. Oh, and by uh, I'd like to thank Fred and Ted for picking me up and we had a wonderful drive out here and uh, my number two daughter and her husband lived up here a couple of years here in Salem and uh, he was uh, on the radio station here and she told me I had to drive out to the Silver Falls because she had been there and it was beautiful Hank and I went together and it was an absolute special thing. I um, I always have a little bit of trouble to get into this thing. <laughs> Are you nervous? <laughs> I I love countdowns. I love birthdays. In Alcoholics Anonymous, because it isn't really natural for alcoholics to be sober, and it's a big deal. And you two who were five days sober today, just follow them around. It's a wonderful thing here. It's really. It could really be the beginning of the best part of your life. So just stay. We have just, uh, you know, I have been here so many times and I am almost embarrassed about it. You know, you have heard my story so many times and I can't do anything new for you. But I, I tell you, it has just, uh, we have just passed Christmas and New Year, and holidays for alcoholics are, they are very difficult, because we have memories. And uh, many Christmases I disappointed my family, and I just think that it's very appropriate for me to share my last drunken Christmas with you. And you have never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> I I came home the 21st or 22nd of December and I had 37 bottles of whiskey gift wrapped. (laughs) They were for my customers. And I told my wife, I said, you know, everybody buys them booze. It's really a half-assed gift. I think I'll go down to Bullock's and buy them something more personal. And then I can keep these for myself. 
and I bought them for wholesale. I can charge them off in my taxes, and it really doesn't cost me anything. I said, what do you think? And I can't tell you what she told me. <laughs> but she didn't share my enthusiasm. We celebrate Christmas Eve in my home. And uh, at 7.30 that evening, I was passed out under the Christmas tree. And she walked by and said the only thing he lacks is a red apple in his mouth. <laughs> and the 5th of January, I ran out of whiskey. I said, I think I'll go down to Al's party pantry and buy some gin because this rye makes me mean. <laughs> and that was my last drunken Christmas. After that, I couldn't get drunk or sober anymore. There was no, there was no relief from it to drink. It didn't matter if I drank a fifth or three fifths. It didn't do nothing anymore. It didn't take away the guilt. It was on all the time. And then I came in here the 1st of October and this was my 22nd sober Christmas. <laughs> the most serious decision I have had to make since I came to you. A few years ago now, my young son said that, Dad, do you think we can buy another strand of lights for the outside of a house? It would look so pretty. And it might sound a little cute, but that's how it was. I don't think... Oh, by the way, I, I know there's a lot of you that have never seen me before. In a very short while, you will know me very intimately. <laughs> and it's really one of the miracles of our fellowship that we, that that happens here. I uh, don't think I'm too presumptuous if I say that some of us here tonight sit with a bunch of burdens and lots of if onlys. But be that as it may, we all here in these rooms are still the lucky ones because we have a chance. Lots of people have this thing called alcoholism, doesn't have a chance, and for various reasons. My father didn't have much of a chance. He had problems with his liver in 1927, and nobody knew anything about his illness then. He was a giant of a man. He radiated vitality. Women adored him, and men envied him, but he died three years later, and he only weighed 130 pounds when he died, and he didn't want to die at all, and he didn't have much of a chance. <clears throat> It's really terrifying to see a person deteriorate. This marvelous, strong man. He was just absolutely green when he died. Screaming. I was eight years old then. My, <clears throat> my older brother is two years older than I am, and he doesn't have much of a chance for another reason. He has something called pride. <laughs> it seems to be... A, did you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> Sure, I hope so. I always get a little nervous. Yeah, he... My older brother, he has this pride. Uh, and this denial that most of us have before we come in here. It's incredible. Eighteen years ago, he lived in a castle outside Stockholm. And he was married to a beautiful girl. In fact, he married my girlfriend. 
<laughs> I had a little bit of problem with that for a while. <laughs> no, I'm glad he did. But he drank like I drank, and he blew it all. And the last 16 years, he has lived in a building in Stockholm with seven other drunks, drinks a fifth of whiskey every night, and just lives in the past. You know, it's in, it costs $15 a month where he lives. And uh, one time he, he lived in this castle and he had $150,000 a year job. He speaks six languages fluently and he has been sitting in that little cubbyhole for 16 years. He can sit down and tell these other guys that once he carried a Swedish flag in the Olympics on five occasions and he really doesn't have much of a chance. My younger brother is seven years younger than I am and he doesn't have much of a chance for another reason. He doesn't want to do anything about his problem. I really love him. When we grew up, I was more or less like his dad. When I was 24 years old, I paid for his college education for three years and the maintenance of it. And mom passed away in 1950. I went home and picked him up and took him out to this country. He's been here ever since. A few years ago now, he was told by his doctor that he couldn't drink alcohol anymore. He said, there's something very wrong with your liver, Carl. You can't drink that booze. He said, told him that for 90 days. But he doesn't drink like I drank. That's all he's looking at. Seven, eight whiskeys before dinner, two kinds of wine, coffee and brandy for dessert. It's kind of elegant. <laughs> <laughs> Even lights a couple of candles now and then. <laughs> it looks just like the commercial. A few years ago, I, I tried to 12-step him. He and his wife was in my home one day, and I, and I told him, I said, Carl, maybe that church will fix us. You don't have to drink. But if it doesn't work out, maybe you can go with me to a few meetings and see what it's all about. And then she spoke up, and she said, Jan, you're an alcoholic, and you know a lot about alcoholism, but you don't know a hell of a lot about anything else. <laughs> and then I said to her... <laughs> said, you know, I only drank for 10 years. I don't know that much about alcoholism. But I have lived out there in that world sober for more than 17 years. An exciting, beautiful, joyous way of life. So I know a lot about good living, and besides that, it ain't my fucking liver that's shot. I really never have been a person who advocates four-letter words from this podium, but I just didn't want her to misunderstand. <laughs> if I upset any spiritual giants here tonight, this morning, I'm <laughs> more than happy to apologize to you, but I just couldn't find a better word for it. <laughs> See, what's wrong with my brothers is simply this, that alcohol is still doing something for them. And that's the nature of the illness, and that's why I said in the beginning that we who are here in these rooms are the lucky ones, because we have a chance. I'd like to mention at this time that uh, I made a tally one time. When I was five years sober, I went to 14 funerals in six months. One guy was 24 years old. He, he was a male nurse in Norwalk in the alcoholic ward. He came into that Alona Club in Anaheim where I sobered up and he stood out and he said, you know, I work in the alcoholic ward. I know what it looked like. I have at least 18 months more to drink before I have to do anything about it. 
24 years old. He had wine sores on his legs, and he died two weeks later. One guy was 30 years old. He owned a Swedish smorgasbord in Lincoln in Anaheim, a very successful businessman, but he drank whiskey and took Valium, and he just quit on him one night. One guy had nine and a half years of sobriety on this program. Had a 46-foot Chris Craft in front of his house and drove a new Lincoln Continental every year. Beautiful guy. He helped me a lot when I came in. When, I, when he had nine and a half years of sobriety, he started to take a little Thorazine and Secondol. Three months later, he was picked up at Lido Dorksville trying to steal some codeine cough medicine, and then he went back to whiskey, died within a year. In six months, I went to 14 funerals. I hope I got you really depressed by now. <laughs> I lay something even worse on you. The American Medical Association has a survey out. Nine out of ten alcoholics never make it. Nine out of ten alcoholics either die or go crazy from this illness. And I hope to God that you and I who are in this room this morning is the one out of ten that's going to make it. And it seems to me like the people who go to meetings and share with others, help out here and be part of this thing, we seem to survive. And that's what I think Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. I, uh, I talk to newcomers and I love newcomers. I like the feelings in these rooms when I'm newcomers and I like being a newcomer myself. It's very important to me. And I'd like to share with you why I like to be a newcomer. I hope I never forget the last year I drank because I compromised on everything I believed in or stood for. I couldn't live a function without liquor. I didn't dare to go to sleep if I didn't have a fifth of whiskey in the refrigerator because I had to have it when I woke up. And if I ran out of booze at midnight, I usually called an associate of mine in Baldwin Park and said, Harold, next week you will owe me $150 on this particular job. <clears throat> but if you give me 20 bucks tonight, you won't have to pay me the 130 next week. And I drove a 100 mile round trip to mid at midnight to pick up $20. Didn't dare to buy any booze in Baldwin Park because then I wouldn't make it home. And when I came home to Anaheim where we lived at the time, I bought a fifth of Imperial Bourbon for 485 and then I was safe and I had to live like that. And I hope I never forget that period in my life. I know some of us, after we get a little well and get a few dollars in our pockets and bedroom privileges again, <laughs> We forget how it really was. In fact, my wife cut me off six months before I came into AA. <laughs> she really ran out of humor at the end, I tell you. you know? <laughs> she stood up one evening and looked at me and she said, John, she said, I wish you could find yourself a girlfriend so I wouldn't have to fool with you. <laughs> said, you take forever. <laughs> now, after sobriety, if you take forever, it's very commendable. <laughs> it really isn't fair. <laughs> I mean, I was really sensitive those days, you know. <laughs> The other reason why I like to be a newcomer, I'd been going to meetings every day for 90 days and Phil Perry talked on Sunday morning. And he stood up here and said, if you keep going to meetings, you will wake up one morning and realize and find out that you can function without alcohol. And it is not necessary to drink anymore and you have a way to go. And I sat in that room and I said, my God, I have experienced those feelings. And it was the first time here it dawned on me that I wasn't hooked anymore. 
that I had some degree of choice over my own actions. And I had already started to experience a freedom here that I hadn't had for a long, long time. And I hope I never forget that period in Alcoholics Anonymous. The knowledge that I wasn't hooked and that I was free. I hope I never take it for granted. Those are the two reasons why I like to be a newcomer. You are new if you just feel or think that you have a drinking problem. Half the battle is won because then you know why you're here. But most of us coming in here, including myself, I didn't feel that way when I came in here. Because there were so many other anxieties that so far overshadowed my relationship to liquor. And I felt if only these things would be straightened out, I wouldn't have to drink as much or do be the way I was. And that's how I think it is for most of us when we are new. Because we so slowly and so gradually grow into our relationship to liquor. It's very hard for us to see where we are in relationship to liquor and admit it because for a long time it worked. It did everything I wanted it to do. It picked me up and slowed me down and whatever. And when they started to talk to me about that I had to give up my booze, I thought they were absolutely crazy and didn't understand at all. And that's how I think it is for most of us when we are new. And I don't really give a damn how bad it gets in the morning because we get used to that too. That's the price we got to pay, no big deal. And to give you an example of how hard it is for us to see where we are in relationship to liquor, I talked in the step house in Costa Mesa some years ago now. There was a guy in the front row, he had a shakes, he was wetting on the floor, and he was in a hell of a sad shape. He came up to me after the meeting and said, you know, I really don't know if I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked him, I said, what seems to be your problem, you know? <laughs> and he said, I got an ulcer. And then he asked me, what is an alcoholic anyhow? And I said, I really don't know myself. Have you ever repeated the same performance again and again and again when it comes to liquor? He said, I don't know what you mean. So I thought about my own case, and I said, has your wife ever complained about your drinking? He said, I ain't married. <laughs> she divorced me two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so the devil flew into me. <laughs> I said, did she divorce you because you had an ulcer? <laughs> And he said, no, she said, I drank too much beer. So I said, well, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> so I asked him, when did you come into this goddamn place? <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the step house in Costa Mesa ain't much to shoot for, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really, when did you come in? And he said, yesterday morning. So I said, did they take you in here because you had an ulcer? <laughs> he said, no, I just couldn't navigate anymore. As far as I'm concerned, he is typical. He couldn't really see himself while he was in relationship to liquor, admit it. And you all knew here, if you saw this guy sitting up here and doing those kind of tricks, you would sit down and say to yourself, oh, that's the way they're supposed to look like. <laughs> if I ever get in that kind of shape or condition, I'll do something about it, and you feel like you're off the hook. Well, this is one of the reasons why we ask you to go to a flock of meetings before you decide whether you belong or not. And then when we start to go to meetings here in the beginning, we usually identify with the wrong things. We identify with the things that hasn't yet happened to us. And that kind of protects our rights or whatever you want to call it. And we hear some very flamboyant stories from this podium from time to time. Like I've been arrested this year already 42 times. Only August. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat back down and heard those kind of stories. And I said, yeah, that's the way they are supposed to be. Because I had never been arrested. 
I never been in an alcoholic ward or step house or anything like that. So how in the hell could I be an alcoholic? I'd been in the building business a number of years. I owned my own door factory. Nice home with a swimming pool. Three automobiles and an English bulldog. So how could I be an alcoholic? <laughs> I mean, that ain't the picture of an alcoholic, let's face it. And we all think, we all have a conception of what we think an alcoholic ought to look like. And I just didn't fit that description. I mean, now Hank Johnson, he looks like an alcoholic. <laughs> 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 so I had a hard time to identify when I first came in. I sat back down and listened, and I heard that we alcoholics have a peculiar attitude. And this guy was up talking, he said, yeah, I live back middle west somewhere, and I decided one Sunday morning I should go to California and start over again. And I wanted to look good when I came out, thus I wanted to have a brand new car. So I got the car deal out of bed, and he got the bank out of bed, and I got the brand new car, and I took off to California. He said I was a little drunk, drove 90 miles an hour over hill, and on the other side was a car parked. And I drove head into that one and totaled out my new one, and my attitude was that never again am I going to buy a goddamn Chevy. <laughs> <laughs> And I wasn't like that. I heard that we alcoholics rebel against society or authority. I never really did. I was for king and country when I lived in Sweden. I supported the president of the United States after I came over here. To the bitter end. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard a sales pitch, I improved on it. I was always for things. I was very positive. I always tried to be part of things. I really always tried to be good. When I sat back here in the beginning, my problems was just plain different than yours. So I looked over my life, it was just like I'd failed regularly. Long before I started to drink, even when I gave it my best shot. I could be very good for a couple of months and then the bottom fell out. And I couldn't understand why I was such a screw-up. And that's what I sat and chewed on here when I was new. Quite some time later, I heard a tape one time now, Alcoholics Anonymous had a 20th anniversary in Santa Monica, and our co-founder, Bill W., was there. And somebody said to him, you know, Bill, this program of Alcoholics Anonymous is really the most fabulous success story that has ever been put together. He said, not really. It's not a success story. It is just a lot of failures that has been put into usefulness. And that day I was very grateful I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I had stayed. So you all knew you just come to meetings for a while because it takes a bit for all of us before it falls in place. I didn't have problems with my liquor at the same place as most of the people I heard from this podium. I started to have problems with my booze at PTA meetings. And <laughs> Girl Scouts and play. That's why I had problems with my booze. And when things like that was going on, I always came home in the afternoon and I said, hey, let's go, you know. My kids usually said, but please, Dad, don't come today. And I said, why? I said, I just love to be with you guys, you know. And <laughs> I said, you're so terribly drunk. I said, I'm not really that drunk. I'm just pleasantly gassed. <laughs> and I always felt I handled it well. In fact, bartenders all over Orange County told me how well I could drink. They used to say to me, Mr. Ackerling, you really know how to drink. I said, isn't that absolutely wonderful? <laughs> 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 I said, you're something else. You were in there last night for an hour and a half. You drank 22 drinks. You never raised your voice. You never got out of line. You 
perfect gentleman and you leave graciously and then go back here again in the morning at nine o'clock and start all over again. I said, isn't that absolutely wonderful? <laughs> and I felt good. I knew I had a handle on it. And everybody in that bar turned around and looked at me and I really felt like John Wayne, you know. <laughs> and that's how it was for me for two years of my drinking, you know. I'll give you the highlight of my drinking career. You know, I, I never drank until 1952. You know, when my father died, my, I promised my grandmother that I was never going to drink. And I didn't drink. And in 1952, I started to drink a little bit on weekends, you know. But nothing, no big deal. And But then, in 1954, the whole deal began. I was employed by this door factory in Alhambra. My boss was alcoholic, I didn't know it, but he taught me how to drink every day. You know, it was something else. You know, we had early times at 8 o'clock in the morning, cocktails at 10, martini lunches from 12 to 2.30, went out and made a few calls in the afternoon, went back to the office at 6 and typed up bids from 6 to midnight and drank whiskey. And I thought I landed in heaven. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you, it was incredible. I could drink a lot of booze and... You know, I, I was no trouble at all. I used to come home to my wife and I say, you know, this building business is out of this world. <laughs> you know, I have never had such confidence in my life, you know. It really is terrific. And I tell you, it's, it's strange, you know, but when I was a young man, you know, I, I took up on all the responsibilities uh, because my father had passed away. And I took, I did a lot of things that a young person like that really, really can't handle. And you know, and the, the strange thing, my emotional makeup then, I had a tremendous inferiority complex. I, was, I had fear you wouldn't believe, and I just faked it. I just faked it. And nobody realized what was going on inside of me when I was that young, you know. And I didn't realize until I came into Alcoholics Now. And I always thought that I never measured up for my part or expected out of me, you know. And I just bluffed myself through all that. But when I tell you, when I found booze, the whole new world opened up, you know. I, I tell you, I could shoot for the moon and nothing can go wrong, you know. I, uh... That company I worked for there, you know, where it all began, you know, they lost money every month, <laughs> for one reason or another. <laughs> but after a year I had been there, I had sold so many doors anyhow, they couldn't pay me my commission, so they gave me one-third of the stock of the company. Now I own the place. You know, I used to come home to my wife and say, you know, I'm just a little immigrant, and I own the goddamn place, you know. <clears throat> and uh, and that's, that's where it all began, you know. I have three beautiful girls and a son, and we took them to church on Sundays. We did everything right to be Americans. The only problem with the church business was that the last four years of my drinking, I was a morning drinker. <clears throat> she usually inspected me down Sunday mornings, and many times she took one look at me and she said, Not today. <laughs> <laughs> and that hurt my feelings when she took off down the street with the kids in the car, and I had to stand on the corner at home, so sometimes I ran down the block after her, screaming and hollering. And <laughs> my neighbors were outside talking about the lawn problem and here I came running by, you know. <laughs> sometimes I was strangely clad. <laughs> and if you ever saw a guy in a Swedish flannel pajamas coming down the street, you know. 
knew something was wrong, you know. She saw me in the rearview mirror coming down like a bat out of hell after her, so she stopped down the block and waited for me and rolled down the windows and said, What's the matter now? You know, I said, Don't forget to pray for me, you know. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I was drunk in that congregational church in Anaheim, but it was incredible. A couple of years later, it had progressed a little bit. <laughs> One week she said to me, you know, let us try the Episcopalian church next Sunday. Because <laughs> the congregational certainly doesn't do the job. And uh, I said, it sounds terrific to me. And she said, yeah, they have very colorful costumes there and they sing a lot. And if you like music, it might hit you. <laughs> I had been drinking the five that morning. I still had a shakes when I woke up, so I went out in the kitchen and drank a little codeine cough medicine and two shots of bourbon to stop the shakes, tightened my belt and walked around with small steps and tried to look effective. <laughs> Passed the inspection and came to church. The only thing I can say to you, the routine in the Episcopalian church, it really ain't for drunks, you know. <laughs> it's a very busy place, you know. I mean... <laughs> I mean, they got up and down and kneel and pray and sit and stand and sing. <laughs> I was up and down three, four times, then my timing got off. <laughs> when they sat down, I stood up. <laughs> and in Sweden, when we don't know the words, we sing tralala. <laughs> I had a couple of solos there all by myself. You know. <laughs> In fact, the second time I came up there and gave the trial of law, you could hear a guy five rows behind me. He says, Get down, you son of a bitch. <laughs> third time down praying I couldn't get up again you know and I clung to that bench I tried every trick in the book I knew I'd get up and couldn't make it tried it sideways and backwards and forward <laughs> even tried to roll up <laughs> and she sat down and looked at me and she said for God's sake Johnny get up and I said it's an absolute impossibility you know so they went up and down and I sat down and sang by myself you know and, Next time I looked behind me, they were all down praying, and here's this guy in the row behind me. He's laying down on his knees with his chin in his hand and mumbling. He looked real serious, and he looked right at me. And I sat on the floor and stared at him. You know. <laughs> Sometimes you look at the guy you focus in, and you lock, and you can't move, you know. He stared at me, and I stared at him, and then I thought I'd better look a little casual, so I winked my eye for him. <laughs> kind of stopped him for a minute. <laughs> sure glad I wasn't in Laguna Beach that morning. <laughs> Maybe I'd been in a wonderful experience. So we didn't go back to the Episcopalian church. 
I don't think drunks like me or alcoholics like me have any problem with booze until we try to stop drinking. And when I started to try to stop drinking, I got into a lot of trouble with my liquor. <clears throat> One week, Karen said to me, you know, you drink too much. I said, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, John, you drink way too much. I said, oh, then I quit. And then I couldn't quit. And then it began. And uh, when I started to stop drinking, I got into a lot of trouble with my liquor. Two days without the liquor, I got the shakes. And then two shots of whiskey stopped the shakes. I could function and work. Then I had to con myself into why I had to have a couple of drinks all the time. And then I started to lie about it, and then I started to hide it, and from then on it got worse. At this period in my life, I worked seven days a week, 16, 18 hours a day, and I drank a fifth or more whiskey every day. I think five years I drank two-fifths of whiskey a day. The last year, three. It didn't matter. I couldn't get drunk so anymore. It's hard work. Jesus. You know, I, I tell you, it is so baffling because we don't know anything about it. It's... It's called, Muriel Zink says, it's honest self-deception. And uh, who in the hell can you tell? You know, I thought I was going crazy. You know, I thought if they really knew what was going on in my life, they would probably lock me up. And I couldn't tell nobody. Two years after the shakes began, weirder things happened to me when I stopped drinking. One morning at five o'clock or four o'clock or something like that in the morning, I, I sat in my bed and looked in front of me and this big white snake came out of the wall. <laughs> Never saw anything like it in my life. It was unbelievable. He came right out of the wall, white, this big in diameter on his fattest part, had three black eyes. <clears throat> he was 23 feet long. And he came slowly across the room, stopped right in front of my face, started hissing me. Right here, I, I sat here paralyzed from fright and looked at the goddamn thing, and tongue dangling, you know, and he was like this, like this, you know. And I sat there, you know. I screamed so loud from fright that my brain exploded for my own sound, and then I fell backwards unconscious. That was how I experienced it. Karen told me in the morning something very strange happened this morning around 4 o'clock. She said, he sat down, looked right in front of me for quite a while, and then he said, <laughs> One morning she almost had me. I woke up and my bed was wet. I said, oh, God, it has finally happened. What can I say to this? <laughs> and she was standing there in front of the bed and looking at me with those cold Alan on eyes. You know those little bitty ones? <laughs> <laughs> well, the dialogue was terrific. She stood on stared at me and she said, Well, I said, Well, what? <laughs> I mean, what the hell can you say? Sure hope there's some bedwetters here this morning. You know, I felt. That moment, my youngest daughter, Katrina, came in and she said, Oh, Daddy, I'm so sorry, but last night when I climbed into bed with you, I believed I wet your bed. <laughs> I mean, talk about the break from alcoholic. <laughs> I just smiled at her. I said, Oh, my little darling, that's a little squirt now and then won't hurt anybody. <laughs> 
I said, you thought I was alcoholic. <laughs> Four days later, it wasn't her fault. I didn't have a dream that I went to the bathroom. I didn't have a bride. I just laid on reason. I said, out to hell with it. If she can do it, I can do it. And that's what I'd become at the time of my life. And today I'm very grateful I'm just a simple alcoholic. Because we have these evidences of self-degradation. And I believe this, that God will let us see how we really are later on. And perhaps then there will be enough panic in us that we seek help. And some of us will have the great fortune of finding this fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous and a way to live. One night I made love to my wife when she wasn't even there, and that's kind of tricky. <laughs> she was laying two feet away from me there, and, and she said, what are you doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I beg your pardon. When <laughs> she realized what was going on, she started to laugh at me. I started to cry because I felt it was humiliating to laugh at the guy who was doing his best. <laughs> in the morning, I'd been out in the kitchen and had my codeine cough medicine and my bourbon. She met me in the hallway and she said, Well, good morning, lover boy. <laughs> And I really didn't feel any pain. I just smiled at her. I said, that's the best piece I've had in a long time. <laughs> I love laughter in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it is an absolute spiritual experience. I think it is... Absolutely part of the recovery of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And everything and anything that we have laughed about so far this morning was absolutely the deepest tragedy when it happened. And when we in this manner of identification can laugh at our own insanities, it makes it possible for us to forgive ourselves and change. It's beautiful. That is a very famous facility in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, a very, very known psychiatrist, and he talked about Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, yes, it is a place where they cure you with love and laughter. And I think it is extremely well put. Like every alcoholic story, ours was very sad at the end. Before I came in here. One time I was sober over on the wagon for three weeks and we should go to Palm Springs and start over. <clears throat> and I, uh, I hadn't had a vacation for five years at that time in my life. I didn't dare to leave town because I was safe there. They took my checks and they weren't always good. But I had a charge account at Al's party pantries. I always got what I needed as far as booze was concerned. And that morning we should go to Palm Springs. I just panicked and I couldn't handle it and I drank a fifth of whiskey before we left and drove 80, 90 miles an hour to Palm Springs. Four kids were crying, she was hysterical and I had to get there while it lasted. 
And she was convinced that it was my way of telling her I didn't love her anymore and wanted out of it and didn't know how to say it. And the second day there, she just locked herself in the bathroom and said, I can't live like this any longer. And she drank 100 aspirins down and said, I'm going to commit suicide. And I laid on that bed and prayed to God, hoping she was going to die so she didn't have to be with me anymore. Because I knew at that time in my life there was no way out of it for me. Because I had tried. And that's how it was, and that's how it is, and that's where it usually ends. But by the grace of God, she got sick so she didn't die, but it was that close. Two years after this incident, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And you can draw your own conclusions how those two years were. And my guilt connected with it. Two years before I came in here, I was fired from my own door factory. Two days before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was picked up at Saturday morning at 10 o'clock in Anaheim in Trifty Mart, trying to steal a pint of liquor for 357. And you should have seen me then. I was drunk and I was unshaven. I weighed 246 pounds at the time. I hadn't been able to get drunk or sober for 10 months at that time in my life. and I couldn't even defend myself. I just stood on wimp, but it can't be me. Look where I came from. And I was brought up in a beautiful family under the most favorable circumstances. But that morning in Anaheim, I looked exactly like a person who has to steal a pint of liquor to live. That evening I had another ultimatum. I, I, I'll tell you a little story to connect with it. You know, I had to convince this man that caught me there that I hadn't really intended to take it. You know. And uh, I drove home and picked up my last three years income tax statements. And I drove back to him and I said, I'd like to show you something. Look at 59, 60, and 61. Do you think a man in my position would steal something for 357? And he just looked at me and said, next time I catch you, I call the cops. You know, you know that's why I, I had to try to convince him that I wasn't such a person. I had that ultimatum in the evening where she said, you know, I couldn't drink anymore and I got off the sauce. My boss then a few weeks before had told me that don't go in and see this developer if you've been drinking. He doesn't want to have your whiskey breath in his office anymore and things were really crowding me. <coughs> the next afternoon I had an appointment with this guy and I had a shakes bed and I went down to my little bar where I had my office for four years to have a couple of shots I could function and see him and two drinks didn't do it anymore. I had seven or eight drinks and then I knew I had had too much and I didn't dare to blow that job too. I sat down in the parking lot at 2.30 in the afternoon in my car and wept. I said, God, what has happened to me? What has happened to us? I had such fabulous plans. Help me or let me die soon. I just can't hack it much longer. And the next day, Karen looked at me and she said, You know, Johnny, for years, because of the children, we have stayed together, but now because of them, we have to part. And either you go down and try to think all Alcoholics Anonymous, or else out you go again. And that's how I came in here. And I didn't think this would work either. At that time in my life, there wasn't anything that was even sacred to me. I hadn't tried to use to stop, and nothing worked. You know, I was five years old. My father stood and looked at me. And he said, John, 
Tell the truth and be honest and nothing can go wrong for you. And a gentleman always keep his word of honor. It was the last thing he said to me. And I lived by those rules all my life. And one time I took the Bible out in front of my wife and kids. I said, I swear to God I'm never going to drink again. I said, Karen, I never broke my word of honor to you. And she said, you know, children, your father never has. And I had. I thought, if I use these things that mean so much to me, I can probably stop. Two weeks later, I was drunk again. I went to a minister for 18 months for counseling every week for an hour, and I leveled with him. I even took my inventory with him and didn't know it. And uh, after 18 months, he realized that what we lacked was identification. He actually, he had read a big book of alcoholics and...